and it is with great joy that we have Alok with us again. Namaskar. Tonight's subject is health and psychology. And it's a subject that is, as we grow older, <laughs> important to many of us. <laughs> Where do we begin? We begin at the very origin of things. We begin with the beginning. <laughs> with, <clears throat> we begin with the beginning. Beginning, good. <laughs> the All beginning right. of creation itself. <clears throat> Actually, yesterday I had a very interesting discussion with a young uh, girl who just got married, who has come from U.S. and she was interested in Advaita philosophy. So she had been reading and listening to Advaita philosophy, but mm. at the end of it, she was asking, "It's all philosophy is fine, but like you know, how does it connect with everyday life?" And I thought that's a good basis to talk about the different uh, ways or different aspects in which uh, it has, this truth has practical ramifications. So essentially there are two ways of looking at oneself and the world around us and even God for that matter. One is a dualistic way that you know everything is separate and it can go to an extreme form where you know each one is separate, separate entity. And within us the body is separate, the mind is separate, the, the life force is separate, emotions are separate, the spirit is separate. And they have nothing to do with each other, but they are like uncomfortable partners dwelling in the same house. Uh, that's how much of medicine advanced and I think that was necessary at some point so that attention could be focused on each part. That's the extreme reductionist mm. model. And now that, you know, everybody is talking about Advaita, the term used is non-dual consciousness. What is interesting is that without using either non-dual consciousness or Advaita, people are actually going towards uh, the same truth. That there is essentially oneness. So it's, uh, you know, a knowledge which is based on oneness. Now, the moment we speak about oneness not going into the philosophical aspects and the deep and profound spiritual truths um, that emerge from it. But essentially it means that all these separate seemings are at a most practical level, not just in a deep theoretical sense, are interconnected. They are interwoven with each other. And we need to find the thread which reconnects us reconnects us with the world around, reconnects us with the divinity that is within and beyond, reconnects us with each other. Easy to understand when we talk about, you know, social psychology that we have to find that connecting thread. And obviously that connecting thread cannot be in terms of mere association, adjustment, accommodation, but a deeper thread that runs through humanity, forming its warp and woof. And this thought is coming up. This is one kind of a new sociology which is emerging. And it's emerging through a back door. Back door of situations and circumstances. So there is a problem, you know, in Paris yesterday, we know. Yes. And uh, everybody in the world reacts to it. You know, humanity becomes uh, suddenly as if we realize that we are uh, woven in one single cord. Uh, otherwise, uh, one response could be, what have, what has this got to do with me? My mm -hmm. life is unaffected. 
but it's not not happening it's spontaneously people are responding and today the latest statement that some of the people uh, spoke were very interesting so one of them said that you know we have to understand that terror is a common enemy it's not about one country another country and uh, then you know there are common goals there are common aspirations so it's coming through the back door similarly in economics we speak about now you know that um, you know there was very interesting discussion yesterday this girl was an economist and um, uh, you know the discussion came on if there is only one why there are number of souls this is a common question and we spoke about it that this one is infinite and as he pours himself more and more into finite forms a time comes because many forms are not really able to uh, absorb retain and expand as a result of this infinite consciousness but because it's pouring ultimately as a result of all this one particular name and form you know uh, is able to respond adequately and becomes one with the infinite consciousness but the beauty now is that if change takes place in one automatically many are uplifted in the process you know shubindo's famous line mm-hmm. one soul's ambition lifted up the race and we see in the life of shubindo and others that how Uh, just because one body is able to hold the infinite consciousness many get influenced so essentially why does that happen that happens because infinity is pouring into many 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 and they are interconnected is therefore existentialism and nihilism and freudianism gone 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 they had their day <laughs> but it's gone so this is a very beautiful way to look at it's coming as i said then you know the moment we discuss that this girl says ah now i understand we talk about it in economics that you know if there is um, a development in the developmental model if you know there is a development at one level it percolates and helps everybody i said yes so that's the way uh, that's the new kind of thought which is coming everywhere now in the field of psychology to start with it means that the way we used to study body and mind and everything is separate that day is gone and the interconnectedness of mind and body has come that's come in a big way already you know it's last uh, i think 30 40 years it's come in a big way though still unfortunately because of the strong grip of uh, physical mind we still treat our bodies as if they are dead bodies now you know it <laughs> you know what i mean by dead bodies it's just a machine so this machine has to be fitted by something outside it now you know machines can't repair themselves maybe some machines do i don't know <laughs> maybe computers have this mechanism but most machines cannot repair themselves somebody else has to repair it and fix it but our bodies are not uh, like a machine they are living uh, organisms and so they have a capacity to work through from within and the body doesn't recognize things as diseases and particularly names it recognizes things as states of consciousness and there are shadowy states there are luminous states and innately it strives to readjust the balance it recognizes disharmony very fast that's how the body recognizes that there is a want of balance and it gives many feelers to us that there is a want of balance uh, some part will begin to you know get stressed out of pain and therefore our attention is drawn to that part so it's one kind of a want of balance it manifests symptoms there are various ways by which the body says 
Now this balance is to be recreated. The interesting part is this balance is being reflected in the body as an end uh, end organ, as we say. You know, is the is the uh, is more like a barometer which is telling us about the pressure. But the want of balance is taking place at some other level. There is lack of harmony. And it goes to this extent, uh, you know, there is a whole science and Mother and Shubindo speak about it and you would be knowing that, uh, you know, photographs were sent to the Mother and Shubindo earlier days before accepting the people. Oh, yes. And they would uh, sometimes make interesting comments that, you know, the forehead indicates this, but the lower part indicates this. And Sri Ramakrishna used to do this as a means to assess. So the inner consciousness reflects even in the way the body is made. It goes to that extent. And therefore this want of balance one can discover, needs to discover and correct it inside. And if that correction takes place slowly, it will begin to percolate onto the physical level and things will disappear. Now this is a new kind of thought which is coming up in, you know, uh, yes, about the role of science and the string theory. Yes. Seems to be that unified Absolutely. field. Absolutely. Yes, and, and uh, I mean, Einstein himself was looking for a, you know, yeah. even in the field of physics, yes. that there is a whole uh, continua continuity. And at least this much we know that we can look at things as separate particles or we can look at them as waves, which are continuous. But when Dr. Dalal and I spoke some time back, he said in psychology there was never any mention of the soul. Yes. Is it still? Well, I am not sure that. Consciousness, well, uh, not consciousness. Of course, is a very general term. Yes. But well, men like Joseph Campbell, who did uh, oh, yes. start off from uh, you know Freudian psychiatry, but they came. He came to India, yes. and he spoke about uh, the sacred space. And I think it's not necessary to use a term. You see, one big problem that we have in human communication is that uh, our clarity. Uh, of definitions becomes a big hurdle in communication. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> now, I would want to hear the word soul. <laughs> the other day, someone came with a phrase from the Gita, a very interesting phrase, and Sri Krishna says in the Gita, Atmev Atmano Bandhu Atmanev Ripuratmana. Literally, it means that the self is the um, enemy of the self and the self is the friend of the self. But the word used is Atma. So he says, how can Atma be an enemy? So, you know, the sense that Krishna has put there, Atma, is the sense of the self, which, you know, as a psychologist, we can understand that we all have a sense of the self. And usually it comes from the mind. It's, he's not talking about the soul here. But uh, if one becomes, you know, uh, caught up in words. So I think in modern psychology, also there is a tendency to you speak of uh, you know for instance when people spoke of factor x or they speak about the you know uh, they use the word spiritual very loosely but there is something which uh, is not yet fully recognizable of course they don't um, you know use elaborate uh, descriptions or they have not really explored it in the depths as a yogi does so it's understandable but i won't say that it's not recognized uh, except in very hardcore schools they do exist and unfortunately a lot of uh, mainstream academia is still hardcore school and they don't, uh, uh, you know, because it's, I think it's because it will make them step out of their comfort zones. See, one good thing about Freudian theory, the good part of it, 
is that it gives me a justification for many tendencies. <laughs> so, <laughs> I suppose it's a great comfort zone. You know, man is an animal, so there are things and issues. And uh, it spares us the effort of ascension, of finding something greater and beautiful. So, um, many people would like to believe this theory. <laughs> so, but, but the fact is that there is a whole range of experience which doesn't fit into the existing paradigms of psychology. Yeah. And there are people who are talking about it, yes, in mainstream uh, or rather the hardcore mainstream. Uh, like, you know, in religion you have... Uh, hardcore elements mm. and soft ones which turn religion towards spirit. Yes. In every religion, there are hardcore elements who will, you know, who are sticking to the outer body. And there are those who are like, who use religion uh, very, uh, with the plasticity and subtlety and uh, through religion they ascend towards the higher realms. So also in, you know, ideas, in the realm of ideas, there are uh, very rigid ideologues. Uh, who are worse than religion, so they are close to everything. But then there are many who understand uh, that there are, you know, softer elements, subtler elements, and there are spaces, experiences, which we cannot connect with in the traditional way, and they are opening to, to this idea of soul. But even, uh, you know, if we don't um, speak of that explicitly, then the one word which, as you rightly say, comes very handy is consciousness. That's the term I think which is going to be the bridge uh, between science and spirituality, if we may use the word. And the mother spoke about the third point where science mm -hmm. and spirituality yes. would meet. Yeah. And consciousness would be the bridge. Because it, it is a word with many, many possibilities. There's a film, you may have seen it, out of Africa with Meryl Streep. Uh, yes, 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 yes. And yes. at one point she says uh, to this boy, I cannot keep you as a houseboy if, if your leg is so infected. Mm -hmm. And the boy says, I will talk to this leg. Wow, wonderful. Ah. Wonderful, yeah. Yeah, that's something very interesting to talk to the body. Yes. That's something we yes. don't do. We let the doctor do the talking. And doctors, uh, you know, are already, <laughs> they are poor healers. <laughs> there is a difference between a healer and a doctor. <laughs> a doctor is somebody with a degree and he has a whole books stored in the brain. And sometimes I visualize them as having a lot of cobwebs all around all, you know, the whole head is uh, <laughs> swollen with... <laughs> Partly with pride. I, I can say this, I am a doctor myself, trained in this. <laughs> and a lot of formations, they don't realize it. So, you know, they are, they look at everything as, they have to categorize and classify. It's an extreme degree of mental development which leads to over-specialization. The very process of specialization, and Shobindu points out the dangers of specialization, both in the field of yoga and in every field. See what happened in yoga. People went into specialization, over-specialization, then techniques and even a whole yes, technology. Yes, yes. So if you do this, then you are doing correct yogic exercise. This is the correct way of meditation. This is the correct way. But what does mother say? She makes it so simple. Any exercise done with a yogic act attitude is <laughs> hat yoga. Mm -hmm. I mean, simple thing like climbing and uh, the stairs up yeah. and down. Yeah. So this element of consciousness uh, begins to, you know, take a back seat as we focus more and more on the externalities, on the 
uh, intricate uh, details of anything. Now, these have their point. It's not that they don't have a, have a point. But if we, uh, you know, completely deal with things as separate and in isolation, then we miss the point. But if we do it against a backdrop of a larger unity, unity of, uh, you know, uh, unity of the soul within unity of man with the cosmos, unity of man with the creator. But in matters of health, often the mind comes in and creates havoc. Absolutely true. And one simple thing that mother used to say, uh, Shubhinda also, that, you know, um, it gives a great vantage point if you learn to detach the mind from the uh, illness. Uh, illness is in its own place and other things are in their own place. It's not easy because naturally if one has a fever or a headache, the mind tends to get drawn. And then it not only gets drawn, the physical mind begins to, you know, every headache has to be a brain tumor and every fever a dengue or <laughs> stuff like that. <laughs> and they're always neighbors, goodwill neighbors, but ignorant goodwill who, you know, put fear. So it's very important to practice, um, even in normal life, a certain degree of detachment. And one simple thing which helps it is, uh, you know, simply to be regular, punctual, to do one's work diligently, regardless of whatever. Then the body learns to obey the mind. But not mind in terms of the fancies. But there is a certain degree of mastery over the body. So we have these two kinds of people and mother used to really, I mean, and I have seen here, people who are regular, simply regular in their work. They go on time, they do their work regularly. You'll see a number of them in the dining room. Amazingly, the incidence of illness, actually somebody should do this kind of a research here. The incidence of illness is much lower in them. And uh, there are various reasons, but one reason is that, you know, by the very fact that uh, one is regular and punctual, it's a sign that there is a certain mastery over nature because only when you have that mastery, yes, yes. because it involves everything from the previous night's food and sleep to everything else, otherwise you cannot function. And the idea of work, yes. Mother says, is the body's best prayer, prayer to the divine. And she used to ask this question when people were ill, she would often ask, is he coming for work? Yes, Mother, regularly, then don't worry. To say that because it opens the body, makes it so receptive to the higher energies. Otherwise, just when we meditate, we come in contact with some part that is provided we really meditate and not just sit cross legged and eyes blinded, but with a soul of thoughts. But then, you know, it's an inner being which experiences it, can at the most put a stamp on the body, but the body has to also open up and become receptive to the higher energies. So, work is a very important ingredient. And as I said, uh, that um, it's not the body and more importantly, the vital whose fancies, you know, I don't feel like working, I don't feel like getting up today, let me rest, let me relax. Now, this is a dangerous tendency because it, uh, you know, mm. the body is left to the whims and fancies of the vital. And uh, the mind should step in there and teach and train the body, educate it. And if it does it, the body wonderfully responds because in nature, it's by nature, as Shobindu says, it's a docile instrument. It is uh, mm -hmm. happy to work. Yes. It's born to serve. But unfortunately, it will serve even a bad master, you know. And once it serves a bad master, uh, it has a bad payoff. So, you know, 
that's one part another thing which i have noticed is that body as an instrument uh, is no doubt uh, you know very much misused and corrupted by many movements particularly strong desires they irritate uh, they create an imbalance because desires mean one part is getting too much prominence compared to the rest um, for instance desire for food strong hunger and greed so it will stimulate one area of the body but it's at the expense of other parts similarly excess of sexual desire again you know it stimulates one area of the body uh, or strong ambition so it's very important to see that is there an imbalance now in a normal human uh, life desires are there everybody is not a yogi but at least a moderation is a very important simple way you know what is called in india as sattvic life so if desires can be brought under a reasonable regulation even of the mind it will do it will go a long way in keeping ourselves healthy just what is called as uh, sanyamit you know life sanyama that's the word used where you exercise a control where everything is in balance I means there is a place for everything there is a place to enjoy food there is a place for human relationships there is place for everything in life place for games place for you know reading place for uh, just entertainment which should be done in a balanced way i remember about the mind dwelling on things that uh, the children used to go to dr nirendra and with all their ills and all that and he would listen very quietly to them and then he would say you want the blue pill or the red pill exactly. <laughs> i have grown and up they were better i have grown up that way i had so many experiences as a child i mean it was a village so the only doctor was an rmp which is called a registered medical practitioner and they were not exactly mbbs doctors ah, okay and he would talk so nicely and you know i always felt i am going to an uncle and then you know he would uh, listen and then ultimately he will give a powder and uh, there were two three colored mixtures one was green and one was pink these two i remember probably other mixtures and you know uh, they were so nice to start with tasty and you get well so the fear factor was missing and doctors didn't know about also you know about many diseases which today we you know diseases multiplied with hospitals uh, and doctors <laughs> but otherwise it was so nice you had a fever and it was okay it'll be fine and you know only if it lasted for 20 days one thought about typhoid or you know more sinister things oh. otherwise people were fasting i remember having as a child uh, you know um, renal colic and um, blood in urine and everything but i said no i am not going to drink water till i offer my flowers to saraswati you know as out of just prayer it was saraswati puja day and the doctor said no no you have to drink lot of water and baralgan injection this that i said i am going to take nothing till i offer so they preponed the whole timings of the puja simply because they had to accommodate a child's <laughs> obstinacy <laughs> the strange part was that everything vanished and um, eventually i was sent to calcutta for detailed test after few days and then you know everything had cleared off and this was a child and for decades now so there are definitely influence of higher energies and we need to recognize that 
And the other part which we need to recognize is this interconnectedness of life. You know the thoughts of those around us, ill will, good will, all these things affect, I mean, our hopes affect others. And that's why certain places, certain friends can be so risky. I mean, going to marketplaces, very often people say, you know, one catches flow because of that. No, it's not just that. Because the market is full of all kinds of vibrations which affect. And that's the term, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. The vibrations. <laughs> yeah. Nalida yeah. was so sensitive that if he, he says, once I tried to go to the Pondicherry market and he felt his whole body is melting. So he came back. Now, you know, uh, that's because of the interconnectedness. And when you become aware and with growth in yoga, one has to become even more conscious because you suddenly open up to, you know, other dimensions, you open up to other forces and much more easily because the ego sense begins to thin out. And so the uh, one has to make a commensurate inner progress to take care of that. Actually, at one level, uh, isolation or separativeness uh, is also protects, as they say, ignorance is bliss, because it protects us. It's a hard shell. But then growth means we have to discover the interconnectedness. So it's a paradox. It's a paradox. Yeah, and one has to go through it. I have a friend who will not touch anyone. Hmm. He will do namaste to everyone, but he won't touch. On the other hand, I know people who touch everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, uh, I'm aware that there are people who... They can uh, embrace everyone. Yeah, with me, uh, uh, like I'm much more freer because I have discovered that, well, uh, everything can be transmuted, everything can be offered, but there are some who tend to become more and more, uh, you know, isolated. Uh, personally, I feel that may not be, a, you know, the ideal remedy. It may be temporary as, at a certain stage. Yeah. But if obviously humanity cannot develop along that line all through, it's an you know it's like uh, an impossibility. At a certain stage, when one is very sensitive, maybe it's required. But I think one has to surpass that, overpass that stage. So it's a whole new world of understanding in the field of health and uh, play of forces deeper and higher, uh, which is opening up, and you know a whole. Um, psychological understanding where we include not just psychology of thoughts and feelings but inner states of consciousness. Now that is coming up and I think a lot of work needs to be done there where we categorize, uh, you know, conventional psychology we categorize as cognition, volition, affect as, you know, distinct uh, elements. So, you know, cognition refers to thought and um, effect refers to feelings, emotions and um, uh, volition, that means the will, impulses, etc. But what we need to do is to understand these things uh, in terms of states of consciousness. So there are states of consciousness which get reflected in thoughts, feelings and impulses. Uh, and uh, if we catch that part, then things become much easier. People often ask that, uh, we all know that we should think positively. And this is a commonest advice given, think positive. So <laughs> then the next step is how to think positive. That's where the problem is. <laughs> Everybody knows we should think positive. But if fundamentally at the level of consciousness, the state of consciousness is small, narrow, turned towards, you know, in its obscurity, uh, mm. full of fear, 
then you can't simply work at the thoughts level. So if you change the state of consciousness, then things change. And for a yogi, yogi can change a state of consciousness in other by changing it within himself. Uh, mother used to do that and she says that when people come to me and they are complaining and they are full of, you know, they are quarrel, they are unhappy. And she says, what I do is I just shift a little needle within myself. So I have to read this three, four times to make sure that am I reading right? <laughs> she doesn't say that I, that also she used to do. I shift the needle within myself just a little and the person is fine. How do the healers work? who have this sensitivity of consciousness. <clears throat> you have to be careful to start with. On one hand is an advantage and this sensitivity also develops at the different uh, levels at which we are sensitive. For instance, uh, at, at one point even now, uh, long back, I experienced something of sensitivity in somebody who was, you know, uh, standing maybe 15 feet ahead of me. But my sensitivity was connected to throat. Even now, maybe because of the uh, this Vishuddha Chakra being you know, more active in terms of talks and expression, uh, basically. So even now, many times, if I if somebody has a throat problem, I know the difference between viral and bacterial simply by knowing the feel here. Of course, I don't tell anyone, but you know, uh, without seeing the throat, it's there. So initially it used to be a big problem. Even now this is a sensitive area. But then what do you do next? The moment the person has gone and if possible right then and there, offer it to the divine and call that stillness from above. Sometimes I feel overwhelmed when a patient has left, uh, he has left a bundle of, not a good bundle. <laughs> it's okay, as healers one has to take it, you know, like everything. So I feel uh, suddenly that, you know, all that energy and vibrations around. So I just sit quietly at that point. I'll just withhold any patient, maybe say a few minutes. And all that is to be done is that the little gesture of turning above and calling up peace, 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 light, grace. And one can actually experience that the whole thing is getting cleared and cleared inside. And then you are back to that. And then you can take the next patient. And sometimes it's amazing that, um, because of this sensitivity, one can become aware of an attack of illness upon oneself. This this was with a patient, but even without a patient. And you are aware that it's going to come and you start, you know, calling that um, peace. And um, it gets blunted. I mean, something much more serious probably gets blunted. Several times, uh, personally, I have tried it because I don't always prescribe this to patients <laughs> because they may not... Um, accept it because people come to a doctor usually for prescription it's fine but uh, with me i have seen in strange circumstances traveling in a train and having a high fever and my first impulse was okay i'm carrying a paracetamol let me take it because tomorrow morning i have to give a talk and uh, then i'm either too tired this has actually happened two years back and i'm too tired and i don't remember exactly where i have kept it so so then, you know, the thought comes to me, this is how it actually happened. So let me put it very clearly that, you know, well, um, even if I take water with the full faith that this is medicine, because every day I take Tulsi uh, leaves like that, this is my dose of vitamins and detox and everything. So 
I said, let me take water is something right there. So let me take it as medicine. So I held the water in my hands and prayed to mother that let this develop all the healing properties. <laughs> and I took it. And after that, I prayed to her. Now everything vanishes, you know, by morning I am fit and fine. So this is several times, uh, maybe, you know, hundreds of times. Um, suddenly the heart will start beating very fast. And if I take that other route, that will get fixed into an illness. And you know, all kinds of uh, NGO and surely they'll find some blocked arteries and stuff like that. But the other way is that, well, uh, your body is uh, throwing up something, pray, aspire and <laughs> till it has to work for mother, let it continue. So that's how I look at it. <laughs> Wonderful. I have a personal story. In the uh, early 70s, maybe late 60s, early 70s, early 70s, I came down with amoebic dysentery. And the cure, flagell, was worse than the disease. Yeah, that's true. I agree. <laughs> so I write to mother. I'm in the nursing home. Tracer, I think I was there. And I say, mother, it's so bad. Must I take the medicine or can I just pray to you and let happen what will happen? Mother writes back. Pray to me and take, take the medicine. medicine. Yes, that because works. body was not ready yes, yet. Yes. Consciousness was not ready yeah. in the whole body yet. Yeah. Sometimes one has to do that, and uh, it's perfectly fine. So one should not be basically rigid about anything. But one thing is for sure: whether one take exactly whether one takes the medicine or not, the uh, the strength has to come from the grace. If that can come in, it's wonderful. One takes the medicine, if one has to see a doctor, one sees a doctor, mm -hmm. it's fine. But basically this trust in the grace, that ultimately the grace uh, will heal me and uh, grace will do whatever is necessary and the grace knows best and the grace can do everything, then it's wonderful to hand over the body to the divine. So many things. A and I have seen the, so many stories of people and uh, authentic incidents, you know, of even tuberculosis, uh, slowly getting well uh, by constantly offering it uh, what was diagnosed as a tuberculosis. So, uh, but the big problem is fear should not come in. You know, the big That's difficulty the... is that when you are surrounded by all kinds of people who put fear into your head and then you, you have also read something and there are always incidents, you know, you know, there are always people who have died somewhere or the other. <laughs> So one has to be free, okay, fine, if one has to go, one has to go. What is there? I mean, uh, one will do uh, till this instrument is of use for her work. It's all right. And when this is, uh, for some reason, uh, she decides to dissolve the instrument, uh, it's okay. Newman is already, as Shubindu says, already purchased and ready, <laughs> the new dress. So we don't have to worry. But I understand that it can be, a, you know, it cannot be done simply by imitating in the mind. It has to be an authentic state of consciousness. Then it works. I did have a friend in the 60s, late 60s. Um, she was a sadika. And her stomach swelled up terribly. And she said, I will take no medicine. I will just trust in mother. I have complete faith in mother that what has to be done will be done. No matter what, she began to die. They sent word to mother. Mother said, well, she'll die in three days if she doesn't go to Jipmer. 
She said, okay, I won't go to Jipper. I'll die in three days, but I'll have her name on my lips. Wow. Wonderful. Yeah, that's so the right. It didn't matter. didn't matter. We also have um, Nishikanto's story. Exactly. He was literally, yes. an, as he used yes. to say, I am an encyclopedia of diseases in my body. Every part. Yes. From uh, And, of course, he was himself the cause for it and he knew it. Yes. Such tremendous greed for food. Ah. And Shobinda had predicted it that if you come here, you will uh, yes. be prone to all kinds of illness because, you know. Um, and if you go outside, outside you'll, you'll be a famous. world famous poet. And then he said, Well, I am coming to the feet of Mahakali, how does it matter? And sure enough, on, at one point when he was on deathbed, the mother came to see him, he was on stretcher and... Yeah, they brought him uh, to the meditation yeah, room. meditation room and uh, mother asked, what do you want? And he just pointed that, keep your feet on my head, chest. Keep your foot, foot on my... Foot on, yeah, my chest. on my chest. And uh, the mother said, she is very intelligent. <laughs> and sure enough, he lived on for another 12 years, he recovered. Yeah. But so, you know, it's a... Uh, I think in times to come, more and more, uh, we will open to these uh, higher truths. It's just a question of yes. time because what else? See, yes. the medical paradigm as it exists today, at least, is a very straight-jacketed thing. You know, human beings essentially are lovers of freedom. So if freedom at different levels, why not with the body? Why should it be at the mercy of so many doctors, medicines and instruments? It's not good. And I take it also like that, as you gave this instance of, you know, somebody dying. That in such a process, it's not only dying with mother's name on the lips, that's wonderful for the person, but I think it works also collectively. One person leaves the body with the name of the mother on the lips, but he, because these cells automatically they, uh, you know, spread out in the earth, it creates possibility of a future victory in others. So it's fine. It's like, yes. you know, one has at least yes. lived the way one should have lived. And if one goes, then other bodies, if not today, tomorrow, maybe 100 years down the line, will be receptive. So I think it has its own uh, beauty and uh, it is a kind of work. At least one has refused the slavery of the uh, old. In mother's realization of the mind of the cells, she said those cells that were transformed in her by a vast contagion, would go out to all yes, who were ready. Yes, that's a very yes. interesting yes. passage. Yes, and that's a passage where she is asking a question that uh, she wants to know what happens to the cells. And then, you know, at one point she even wanted to just go ahead, speed up with the transformation and leave aside whatever cells were not agreeing. And then she says, but what about them? They also want, so, you know, of course, Cellular consciousness is something which only mother could speak about because you know, she was aware of that. For us, even in general about the body consciousness or the physical consciousness, maybe consciousness of certain organs, if it can open to the light, to the peace which is above, but I guess for that we have to practice it when we are normal and healthy. Yes. Then it becomes easy you know, to every day maybe call some peace, take a bath, psychological bath, spiritual bath every day. So, you know, as Vivekananda put it that every day we must take a bath uh, 
both physically and spiritually, but if we can't take physically, at least we should take spiritual. So uh, I fancied he must have said that when he must be traveling all the way to the west, <laughs> because in the ship or otherwise it must may have been difficult. So I think that's how it is. Um, one has to keep on everyday practice this, that as Shubhinder said, there's a whole ocean of light and peace above our head. And we have to practice calling it down and give ourselves to that, much more important. And open and offer ourselves and slowly, once we get accustomed to the process, then it's easier to work it out. And I think as we succeed in ourselves, it gets translated into others. So the vibrations, for example, in the Om Choir. Yeah, yeah, wonderful. Touch the world. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Or collective prayer, collective Absolutely, and Mother has spoken about it. And what I think is beautiful about the Om Choir, particularly since you mentioned, is that there is no fixed form or pattern. You know, because the moment you do it, you will reduce it to something which is, uh, you know, limited in the mental world. But if you allow it to grow and expand, that's why, again, you know, the other day we were speaking about Savitri, uh, a mother's music for that matter. We should not try to categorize it in terms of, you know, Western, Eastern, classical, this, that. Because it's something which is come from the infinite. So we will find some notes which correspond to our understanding, but there would be notes which are beyond us. And that's what is something beautiful. Because then, you know, it has a power to go beyond the realm of the mind and tap something which is beyond. I think Om Choir is like that. There's one thing very good. Maybe very intuitively you have uh, proceeded along that, because otherwise wherever we have Om chanting, in India, we have several places, yes. and they formalize it a lot. So, you know, some places, so it's like, first you say, ah, uh, then you say, oh, yes, then you say, yes. ma, and there has to be a certain way, everybody together. It's all right. Uh, it has its, um, it's a kind of harmony, but a limited harmony. So one has to be, you know, a lot more freedom of the infinite. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's a joy.